This morning's reading is from Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is now, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in, with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Oh, I'm sorry, you may be seated. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up. Is now the time for the Messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. 
The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. 
But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing healing to all of creation and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. All right, good morning, Redemption. For you uh, fellow Seinfeld fans, I want to wish you a happy Festivus. Today is December 23rd, and so uh, Frank Costanza, George's father, is very happy today. Let's move on. <laughs> of all these um, minor prophets that we've been doing and all the videos that we've shown from the Bible projects on the minor prophets, all the videos are very good. But there's a level of helpfulness that the one on Zechariah gives us that probably can't be matched by any of the other uh, books because the book of Zechariah is so difficult to understand. Um, the first time you read it, if you've ever read it, and I know that most of us never read Zechariah. I mean, it's in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet, and his name begins with a Z. So that's like three strikes against him already. Nobody hardly ever read. But if you do read him, Literally, you're like, okay, this guy stayed at happy hour a little bit too long. When you start reading some of these visions, and if you don't have any reference point whatsoever, like many of us don't have, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not linear. It's symbolic. There's a much deeper meaning, and so it's, it's really, really hard. And so this video helps to clarify all of that, put things in context, so that now we can talk a little bit about the book. And the way we're going to handle it today, I won't do a whole lot of text work today. Um, we will get, get a little bit of it, but mostly it's just going to be an overview, and we're going to talk about uh, what the video points out and, and sort of an overview of the book before we actually go in and, and look at just a few of the, uh, of the paragraphs here as an example of what's going on. So a couple things right off the bat about Zechariah that the video noted and, and noted very um, completely, I thought, and clearly. Uh, first of all, this vision of the high priest Joshua. Uh, there's a lot of significance there. The, the video said that Joshua, the high priest in this, quote, trial in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, is clothed in the sin of, of Israel. And, and Joshua, of course, represents Jesus in the New Testament, the Messiah, who at the cross was clothed with our sin. Uh, even though he was naked at the cross, he was nevertheless clothed, metaphorically, in our sin. And, and what's really interesting, just one of those little side notes, and, and I'm a word nerd, so I love entomology. I love studying the origins of words and names and their meanings and things like that. 
Um, the name Jesus actually comes from a later Hebrew version of the name Joshua, which is Yeshua. So there's this, just like with English words, if you study many of, you know, English words, some of their entomologies and their origins, you will find that they evolve over time, uh, over centuries. And the same thing happened here. This name evolves from Joshua to Yeshua to Jesus. And so there's, there's even a connection there. And then you have in, in chapter 9, you have this vision of the Messianic king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal. It, it, again, it's amazing the connection that you can make. It's a very Easter-like um, message in Zechariah. I mean, that's Palm Sunday anyway, but it's, it's the season of Easter. And then, of course, this vision of the shepherd and the shepherd being rejected by his own people and his own shepherds. And, and you see that in chapter 12 primarily. I mean, it, it's just amazing, amazing. These visions, as strange as they are, as, as seemingly 60s-induced as you might think that they are, um, isn't really why we picked this to be the prophet that we look at two days before Christmas, but rather it's the obvious connection with the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and, and the coming of Jesus. It's really important. Um, I would love to be able to unpack all these visions. I, I love that kind of stuff. I love getting into the weeds, as we say. Not the weed. I like getting into the weeds. I like to get into the forest. Maybe that's a better metaphor. I like to get into the forest and, and poke around, look around. I love to do that. There's no way to do that this morning or, or any morning. I've thought maybe um, it, it would be a good Wednesday night class eventually, so we might do that. But again, just staying on the significance of Zechariah, and, and how often he's overlooked, we should also remember that he's one of the most quoted prophets in the New Testament. Well, we, don't, we don't always realize that, because as we're reading along in the New Testament, we read things that, that they, they don't, here you go, the New Testament writers don't always cite their sources the way you're supposed to in, in a college term paper or research paper. But Zechariah is there, and Jesus even quotes uh, Zechariah quite often, certainly not as often as Isaiah, but he does quote him uh, often as well. That should say a lot about Zechariah and his message. So let's kind of dive into this overview of who Zechariah is and what his message is and what he's trying to do in the book. If you remember on December 2nd, we looked at the prophet Haggai. And obviously Zechariah is a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. Zechari Zechariah's prophecies are all uh, 520 and after. Now, Haggai's were all in the year 520, but Zechariah's start in 520. Uh, most of the first seven chapters was written in 520, and then scholars believe that the rest of these were written and proclaimed sometime after, maybe even going into um, the er, uh, early 490s uh, BC. So he had, a, he had a substantial ministry longer than Haggai's. And unlike Micah, who we studied last week, um, Micah, we only knew where Micah was from. We didn't know anything about Micah as a person and his people. Very different with Zechariah. We know a lot about who Zechariah's people are. We're first of all told that Zechariah is part of the professional religious class. He was a priest. And he came from a priestly family. A family that was carried away originally in the Babylonian exile, who spent the 70 years there in exile, and then his family came back um, when... when uh, uh, um, Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, 
you know, when they knocked off Babylonian for the, Babylonia for the world heavyweight title, when they decided to release all of the Jews to come back or go to Susa if they wanted to, his family came back. They were among the first family to return to Jerusalem in 538 um, B.C. And so they got to come back uh, under this new idea of Cyrus's where he believed in local traditions just as long as you paid your taxes. That was a key. You had to pay your taxes. You had to pay your tribute. But other than that, he would let them go back. So his family comes back. They're part of that initial rebuilding effort that happens in Jerusalem from 538 to 535 or 534. And then if you'll recall, Haggai's prophecy was that they had quit working on the temple and they were only working on their houses. So very quickly, within just three years of returning, all the people that abandoned their work on the temple and they had become what we might call pragmatists. And, and there's one sentence that sort of defines the ethos or the ethic of the people in Israel at that time when they quit working on the temple. And it's this. The only thing I will do or the only thing I will be involved in is something that benefits me directly and tangibly. And so they quit working on the temple. And that was, that was the ethic of the entire community when both Haggai and Zechariah stepped in. So Haggai's prophecy focused specifically on getting the temple rebuilt, which they did, and five years later they were able to complete it in 516. Zechariah, however, focused at the same time that Haggai was focusing on the temple, he was focusing on the people, uh, calling them to a true faith, calling them to return to the, the faith that God has given them, to the covenant that God has made with them. That was his big deal. You need to become the people of God again and be with them. And here's something else that's interesting about Zechariah. Whenever I teach the Old Testament prophets, one of the things that I, I, I say quite often, because I think this is really important, and I've said it even in this series, is that when people think of the Old Testament prophet, when they think of a prophet, most of the time what we think of is a prophet is somebody who tells the future. And in fact, that's not necessarily true. Most of the work of the prophets in the Bible were, were, were not future tellers, but rather they were prophets in the sense that they would look at what the people were doing, how they were behaving, and then they would look at God's word and God's law and God's commands, what God had called them to. They would look at that and they would say, this is not matching up with this, and therefore they would make an educated estimation of where they would end up. They, they would they could predict the short-term future simply by saying, if you stay on this path, you're going to be in trouble. You know, anybody who knows God's word and, and is obser an observer of humanity can also do the same thing to some extent. And that's what a lot of the prophets do, but they do it with flair and great uh, rhetorical um, uh, ability. This is not Zechariah, though. Zechariah is primarily future tell. You read his prophecy, and he's... He's having visions about what's going to happen way in the future. He's talking about things that are going to happen way, way in the future that may not have any connection with any reality going on in his day at that moment. And, and so these future-telling things, really, there's two primary things with another, a third thing that's, that sort of undergirds it all. Here are the two primary things. He talks about the Messiah to come. That would be Jesus. And then he talks about the new Jerusalem the restoration of the Garden of Eden. Talks a great deal about that as well. And we remember in Amos, the future Messiah was referred to as David's booth 
in Zechariah, he's referred to as David's branch. So again, there's this connection with King David that the human line of Jesus actually did come through King David, which is part of the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah to come. Here's something else, and this is, um, this is that third thing that undergirds the Messiah to come in the new Jerusalem. In Zechariah, there is this amazing emphasis on God's sovereign power over the entire world and the entirety of creation. And it's something that isn't clear the first, second, or maybe even the third time that you read this book. Zechariah is kind of like this. This is what I've discovered in reading um, difficult things. It's, it's like if, if, you, if, if you read difficult poetry that's classic and supposed to be really wonderful, you've heard from somebody, this is the greatest poetry, and it's been revered for centuries, and you read it, and you go, I, I don't get it. The first time through something like that, that's usually what happens to it. I, I don't get it. But then you reread it and reread it again, and you hang in there with it. And then maybe you, you study it a little bit. You have some conversations with the person who recommended it to you, somebody who's been living in that for a while, and, and you talk to them about it. And then things start to come together, and, and, and it starts to make sense. And you begin to see the beauty and the wordplay and the message that's embedded in there. That's what reading Zechariah is like. It, it's like you've got to keep reading it and reading it and reading it to really begin to appreciate it and understand it and have conversations about it. Here you go. When I first became a Christian, and a lot of people would reference the book of Job, and the first time I read Job, I don't ever want to read that again. That was a downer, and it was pretty boring, Okay. But now I read Job with just this, uh, a much deeper, you've you got to hang in there with it and keep reading and rereading it. So one of the themes that emerges from Zechariah is he keeps coming back to this idea that God is the sovereign creator of everything. In the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, one of the things you'll find is the importance of an emphasis on the number seven. The number seven occurs quite frequently. And scholars have, have said that's important that the number seven, occur, you know, it's the perfect number and all of that stuff. We get it. But uh, specifically in the Torah, what commentators have said is that the reason the number seven is important is, is, is because it's constantly referring to and reminding the people that God, the Lord God, Yahweh, is the creator of the universe. Why? Because on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he did the first six days. Seven is a shorthand, quick way to symbolize the message that God is creator. Zechariah is firmly rooted in the Torah of God, the law of Moses. And, and you see that in his writings. He says, look, the Lord God, Yahweh, is the creator of everything. And he has to be the creator of everything. If he's the one who's going to bring about our salvation, bring about the Messiah, and bring about the restoration of Eden and the, and the new Jerusalem, it's so important. You also saw that Tim Mackey mentioned it, uh, in the video that, and, and I think he mentioned it three, three times, uh, the people of Israel, the God's people, always seem to be looking for God to do something first, and then maybe they'll get around to responding. We, we really need God to prove his worthiness before we'll do Why isn't God moving? And we do the same thing. We do this, well, you know, maybe if God would move in this situation, maybe if God would show me, maybe if God would do something, then, then maybe I could feel more comfortable about responding. 
And what Zechariah does is he turns it around on them and he reminds them, uh, just like the rest of scripture reminds us, that God has always been the first mover. He was always the one who acted first. He's the one who came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and made this one-way covenant with Abraham. He just went to him and said, you are going to be my people and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others and you will always be my people and there will always be a remnant. God is always the first mover. Zechariah has every right to look at the people of Israel, God's people, and say, no, 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 you got this back. God has already moved. God has already moved. He hits this often, and he hits this hard. It's like he's saying to the people, what does God have to do before you fully realize that he's the real deal? Again, going back to this summer and, and early fall, I spent a lot of time reading and studying in, uh, the book of Exodus and, and reading the commentaries, and I was just fascinated with it. One of the things that all the commentators of Exodus had in common was how they kept talking about how God would do this miraculous thing for his people, like split a sea so that they could escape the, the Egyptians. And, and within five minutes, they're like, what have you done for me? I'm, I don't know if we can trust this God, you know. He's not that great. I mean, I, I know he split the sea and all that stuff. And, and he did all these other amazing, the locust thing. That was kind of cool. But I mean, really, what has he done lately for they just immediately go back to the whining and the entitlement. And Zechariah just doesn't put up with this. He keeps turning the tables on them. And, and you know, we need to come to grips with this, too. We do as well, because we have this same ethos. And, and, and here you go. It's not an indictment of our character when I say this. It's just the way we are. We're always looking for someone else to be the first mover, especially God. But it's a problem when it comes to I mean, if you think about this logically, it becomes a problem. A couple things. First of all, here's one, one way to look at it. I know as a pastor um, and teaching the Bible and having conversations with lots of people who are Christians who claim Christ as their Savior, lots of Christians really don't like this idea of election or predestination, even though it is in the Bible. They don't like it. You know, it's not fair. It's a, I have a problem with that all of that, um, this notion of election and predestination, they complain about it, yet they also often are the same ones complaining about the fact that God isn't moving first. Now, just let me ask you this question. Isn't election and predestination God moving first in your life? Right? He has, he initiates, we respond. We need to get into response mo mode, not critical, what are you doing for me now mode. It's really important. And, and here you go. Let me just reiterate this. This notion that we have of justice and fairness and equality, which is why some of us struggle with election and predestination and all of that, that notion of justice and fairness, that's good. That is a good thing. God has, has placed that in our hearts for eternity, this idea of, of justice and fairness. But we also need to remember that sin has corrupted our understanding of justice and fairness and purpose and mission. And we always need to defer to God in the midst of that because he's the one that has the pure view of that and he has the long view. My, my whole idea about that we're in this long game with God and we may never even live to see the end of the long game necessarily in our life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is just pragmatically. How many of us, and I fall victim to this too, all the time, how many of us are willing to pursue the one who has offended us 
who has rebelled against us. That's not our deal. When somebody, when somebody offends us or rebels against us or does something that sins against us, does something that we don't like, we sort of take that posture of, well, they need to come to me and apologize. They need to come to me to seek reckon. They need to make the first move. Um, for those of you that have never done couples counseling with me, this is just a good little inside tip, okay? I can't tell you how often I hear in couples counseling these statements. Well, I'll consider doing that if he first does this. Or I'm waiting for her to make the first move, and until then, she can just wait. Okay, nothing's ever going to get done at that point. You realize that, okay? But we need to be the ones that jump in, okay? How many of us, in the midst of any conflict anywhere, have uttered these words? Well, if they want to talk, they know where I am. It, it, and the reason I bring this up, I said this a couple of weeks ago, it, it's just so amazing how often you and I expect God to do things that you and I would never do. Where's the justice in that? See, God is calling us to something much bigger and better than that. So everything in these 14 chapters of Zechariah really point to one thing. There is one authority in this universe, and it isn't us. If you want a good take-home for today, that would be it. There is one authority, and it's not us. And we could really save ourselves a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of dismay, a lot of frustration if we just humbly submit to his love, his grace, um, his call and his wisdom in our life. And, and one of the things that we have to remember is that he's never going to give us all the information that we think we need or want. How many of you have been in that conversation with God? Like, like, is it in here? Is it somewhere in here? Why can't he just tell us? Okay? He's never going to give us everything that we want, but he's given us everything we need. And we need to be willing to, to, to accept that. H here you go. Th I, and I know... This, this is going to be a little bit, this like pastoral cheesy, okay? Very cheesy. But just because it's cheesy doesn't mean it isn't true, but it's cheesy. Okay, here you go. We think God, we go to God, we'll say, look, God, I, whatever, you got a plan A, you got a plan B, and you got a plan C. I think I figured out the plan A. Man, this would be really good if we could do plan A, but I could see plan B as well. Plan B would work for me as well. Maybe we could do that. Plan C is okay. Too. I'm not as high on plan C as I am on plan A or plan B, but plan, plan C would work as well too. And the problem is, is that plan, God has a plan J. He has a plan that none of us have thought of, and that plan J is Jesus. See how cheesy that is, but it's true. <laughs> it's Jesus. That's the plan. And that is spelled out clearly in Zechariah. And that plan, if you want to break it down, if you want to analyze it, if you want to deconstruct it, it has four essential components. Here they are. Number one, there is a Messiah, a son of God, the son of David. Number two, there is redemption, even when it looks bleak. We need to remember the long game. I was talking to Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors this week, and I was talking to him about this idea of the long game, and, and he said, that, I like the metaphor. He said, yeah, we need to remember that essentially we're playing two minutes in the second quarter of this long game. We don't get to see the whole thing. And that's why faith, and trust and hope in our inheritance has to take place in our lives, the faith that Jesus gives us. So there, there is a long game. Number three, there will be ultimate condemnation for all that is evil and any enemy of God. And number four, there is a kingdom coming, this new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is going to be void of sin, pain, sorrow, and tears. So just a little bit of text work. 
just, I, I pulled out like four areas that I want to mention. The introduction, for instance, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, that's the king of Persia after Cyrus, so we're talking about 520 B.C. now, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah is simply stating, Do not fall into the same pattern as those who have gone before you, the generations that have gone before Don't make the same mistake that your ancestors have made. Don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? The message that the prophets gave you, my words, last longer than you do physically, last longer than the prophets do physically. So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. Zechariah starts right out of the gate, and he says, look, you've got to stop this foolishness. And then he reminds them, there's only three things that last forever. Right out of the gate, he says, look, I know you think you've got the world by its tail. I know you think you've got this figured out. But there's only three things that are going to last forever. Three eternal things. God, his word, and his people. That's it. Everything else is perishing. And, and in fact, here you go. Um, John, in his first letter, he writes something very similar. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the things... Um, in the, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride uh, of life, or the pride in possessions. By the way, that matches up perfectly with what Satan tempted Eve and Adam with in Genesis chapter 3. So I'm guessing that John had this in the back of his mind as he wrote it. Okay. He said, don't love these things. Don't love the, the pleasures of the flesh, the pleasures of the eyes, and, and the pride of life, because they're not from the Father, but they are from the world. And then verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, there's eternity, and then there's this temporal nature of things, and in eternity, there's going to be God, his word, and his people. That's what's going to last for eternity. And then after this introduction, all the visions begin. And they communicate very simply, here's how you, my people, are falling short, and here's God's promise to remove all sin and all iniquity and to faithfully provide for his people. He is the king of creation. He can do that. And then you get to one of those middle visions. This is vision number four. It's the one about Joshua, the high priest, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You ever felt accused by Satan? You realize that the Holy Spirit filled, has filled you. Just, just rebuke him. The lies. 
that he tells you. Just rebuke him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So this is the picture of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He, he had the, the filthy rags of our sin that he took to the cross. And, and he traded those filthy rags when God, when God turned his wrath on him. And that then allowed him to give us his righteousness. That's the great exchange that we all have in Christ. It's an amazing thing. And you can see again in here, it says, you know, the branch, I'm sorry, the brand was plucked from the fire. That word brand is another word for branch or a large stick that is about to be consumed by the fire. You know, and you're watching a fire and you think something's about to be consumed and then it gets pulled out. You, you think about the, the professional religious people, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and all of those standing at the cross of Christ celebrating this victory. The Romans thinking, okay, this is finally over with. We can move on. And then three days later, he comes busting out of the tomb. And he's the branch, the brand, the stick that's been plucked from the fire. And, and he goes on to save us in his resurrection. And then there's this turban. Pretty big significance with the turban, apparently. What, what is the significance? It's a sign of purity and wisdom. It's a sign of holiness and righteousness that starts from the very top, starts with how we think about things, starts with how we see things, how we perceive reality. And we have this new reality now in Christ. We have this new reality of God feeding us his his love, his wisdom, his mercy, his commands, his calling, so that we can be his people. It's also a symbol of the new messianic order. It's a symbol of the gospel of Christ. And then you look at chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. This is where there's that little interlude where he's wrapping up the visions, but he hasn't quite gotten to the last part of the book. Starting in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. These are all things that are contrary to how, the, how God's people were behaving, the corruption. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Like I said, it's a wrap-up of, of the visions, and it's a call to mercy and to justice. And, and that verse, I think it's verse 9 in there, 
They stopped up their ears. And how many of you ever had children or maybe a spouse, and you're talking to them, and they don't want to hear you? And they do this, and they, la, 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 la. Maybe they do this, la, 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 la. They don't want to hear it, okay? We do that as adults, too. We have our filters. We don't like hearing something that is contrary to what we think is good for us, what we think is doing it our way. We struggle with that. All of us do. We just we have this built-in diamond hardness in our heart that, that only God can soften, that only God, by the filling of his Holy Spirit, can come and save us from. Let him come. Allow him to come. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your Savior. Allow him to come. This passage is also a reminder of the consequences for not heeding the commands and the call of God in our life. And as you can see, there is this level of great care and concern that God has for those who are under-resourced, who have been struggling their whole lives. He has great care for them. Last couple, they're just two different verses that I want to hit on. And one of them was clear in the video. It's 9-9, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus. And then chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, listen to this, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's Jesus, the only Son of God, the firstborn of the Father. It's Jesus. God promises that all evil will be expelled and his people will be purified. That's the hope. That's the inheritance that we have. The result's going to be this new Eden, the new Jerusalem. Again, where there's no sin, no pain, no sorrow, no, te no tears. There is no distrust, no doubt. There's intimacy like we've never had before. There's celebration like we've never had before. There's work like we've never had before. But I would say this verse represents the most significant thing about Ze Zechariah. Now understand, he proclaimed this 550 years before this event actually happened. Talk about future telling, okay? This is the most significant thing. He explains that this purification of all of the evil and wickedness in this world, it's going to happen through the cursing, the piercing, and the sacrifice of one who belongs to God, who is of God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and the Father, we are one. We are one and the same. We are the same essence. Jesus is God. He cursed and pierced and sacrificed his own flesh, his own essence, his very self, the cleaning of this evil, the making us righteous, the bringing of holiness to us is done through the cursing, the piercing, and the sacrifice of that which is God's own. And God turns his hostility on that because sin has to be paid for. And Jesus did that for us. That's the ultimate price that he paid for our sin. 
And so Jesus achieved 500 years after Zechariah's prophecy, God's saving purposes by being judged by God, the very God, the Father, so that we would never have to experience it. We would never be condemned. We would never be looked upon by the Father as unholy or as unrighteous, but he would look at us and he would see the sacrifice of Jesus. He would see righteousness and purity and cleanness. We will never have to be judged or condemned by God. You know, it's the 23rd. Some of you might be going, I hope the sermon's over because I really need to get to Fashion Square right now. If you're looking for a great gift this Christmas, this is the best gift ever. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that for all that you have done by your son's sacrifice, by his life, by his resurrection, God, for doing what we could never do for ourselves and giving us that great gift. And, and we celebrate that by celebrating his birth, but we also celebrate that by, by singing of his resurrection, by singing of the sacrifice as well that, uh, that he has given us on our behalf for us. God, we thank you for that. I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we could live into that. And God, remind us every time Satan wants to remind us of how unworthy we are and how we don't measure up, just tell him Jesus. That's it. We pray that in his name. Amen.